0: Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment and let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. This week, uh, Reverend Dr. Bryce Ashlin Mayo wraps up our series, While We Wait. And again, Bryce is a friend of Southview and served as a pastor in the Alliance for 25 years, and he's currently the Dean of Theology and Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology at Ambrose University. This week, we had a quick chat with Friends of Southview, Dave and Donna, international workers, and why don't you take a listen? Uh, For this evening, I want to invite Dave and Donna to come up, and they, many of you may already key in on that name, Uh, and we've been partnering with them as a church for a number of years, a long, a long time, and uh, Dave was, he did his internship here in 2001, Um, But they're here with us today, and I just wanted to ask, there's been a lot of change, uh, but it is really great to have you, and there's been a lot of change in the last few years, and just share with us how things have shifted from uh, your ministry before into what you're doing now.
1: Uh, A lot has shifted in two and a half years, uh, I'm sure here as it is in our lives. Uh, We do want to say thank you for all your prayers over these many years and for the finances that have backed what we've been doing through the Global Advance Fund. And it's just been so encouraging to know that we share this ministry with you. And this is not something we do on our own, but something we share with you. Uh, some of you know, we've been involved in a social enterprise for many years. Uh, we had to step away from that two and a half years ago. We weren't able to get back in the country where we were serving, and uh, that was a big shift for us. We were planning to move transition out of it anyways, but uh, God saw fit that we do that really quick two and a half years ago in a matter of about two weeks. And so we've stepped out of that and we've stepped into a new role in Thailand and it's uh, 50% of it is overseeing some Canadian um, alliance teams in Asia and kind of helping them with member care, with strategy, with uh, team building, team dynamics. And so that's been really an exciting uh, new opportunity for us. Uh, The other 50% of our time is focused on digital strategy. And our vision, our hope is uh, that wherever there's a, a, a people group that doesn't know Jesus, wherever they are in the world, no matter how hard it is to reach them, that they will have access to Jesus through technology that's available to them. And so it's been an exciting journey to, to work on that, to, to talk with people that are doing it, talk with people that are saying, what are you talking about? And uh, to see that grow. And one of those things that we're working on and launching right now is called Serve Remote. I'm going to ask Donna to share a little bit about that.
2: So we're pretty excited about it. We uh, just launched the website like two weeks ago, so excuse any possible links that might not work. But we do know that the contact us now works. So um, server Remote is a really great website for people in Canada, such as yourselves, to connect with our international workers who have projects that they need help with. So maybe there's a front-end website, they just need some help with some graphic design, or maybe there's actually a mentoring project that's up on there right now that you have some time where you go, you know what, I could answer a few emails a week where someone's reaching out and they know that you're a believer and they want to talk to someone because they're lonely or they're depressed and there's some training before you start to answer emails but it is one great way to connect with people who speak English um, who just want to have a conversation and this of course does connect with our international workers because they're overseas but they are English speakers and so it's there's various projects up there and you can see as we're scrolling through things um, contact us on server remote we also have a table at the back Um, just by the doors, and you can scan the server remote card there. The other one that we have a partnership with is Global Switchboard, and that one is for all of you who have so much time in your hands, because I know you do. Um, Actually, it's one-hour conversations. That's what we're looking for. Again, international workers, they're have a social enterprise like we did, or they're uh, educating their kids, and they just want to have a conversation with someone, and they're like, I just have a few questions. If I could talk to someone who understands education in Alberta, that would be really awesome. You connect with someone, and then you just have a one-hour conversation. If you want to continue the conversation later, you're more than happy to do that, but the initial is just a one-hour conversation, and that may happen... Twice a year, three times a year. So we're really excited about our partnership with Global Switchboard. And again, if you want more information, come to the table right by the um, exit doors and happy to talk to you about that.
1: Most of our work is digital, it's uh, virtual, it's kind of fun. We're in Thailand, but we spend a lot of time on our computers.
0: And I think, like for me, when I was, so oftentimes the way we support missions, when when it comes up in this context, many of you are familiar with our Global Advance Fund, which is kind of an alliance thing, which really enables international workers. There's still a lot of work they need to do, but they don't have to raise individual support in the same way as many of the other denominations. So giving to the Global Advance Fund is critical for the success of missions in our alliance denomination. But at the same time, it's really cool, in addition to that, to look at something like this and go, okay, it's not just money and it's not just prayer, both of which are critical and important, but I can also meet a need, be a part of a project, and use the gifts that I have while I'm here in Canada to help somebody elsewhere in the world that is needing help for something they're, they're trying to accomplish in building the kingdom. So I think it's really, really exciting. And uh, so as we move on, how can we pray for you? Obviously, all of us are going on the website later. Uh, Bryce, I know you have at least nine minutes to give, but we'll all go on the website and we'll all give to the Global Advance Fund. But how can we pray for you?
1: Great question. Um, One of the big concerns, uh, not uh, burdens on our heart, is this: a local couple is taking over the social enterprise back where we were, and so they uh, God brought them around, and they are just passionate to continue working, uh, selling the hand knit garments that we were making, and working in the village with the ladies we were working with. So. Prayer for them for courage, encouragement, and just uh, sustainability for the business. Um, lots of things have happened around the world in the last couple of years economically, and it's not great. And so, just prayer for them as they as they move forward. They're a believing couple, just following what we're what we've done and, and continuing it on. So pray for that. Pray for wisdom, for us and our teams as we think through what it means to use media and technology to bring the gospel to people who've never heard. Uh, People uh, often ask, uh, I'll pull up my phone, show them an app I'm working on, and they'll say, hey, uh, that doesn't make sense. Aren't the people you're working with don't have that kind of technology? They do. And so it's the wisdom to know kind of what the appropriate technology is. So pray for wisdom. And third thing quickly is um, God would mobilize a whole bunch of people to um, partake in this server mode, that God would raise up a whole... A significant amount of professionals who are missions-minded that want to volunteer their time and their skills to help out with international workers.
0: Well, why don't I pray, and then uh, and then Spencer will come up. And Father, we pray for Dave and Donna, and we thank you for uh, keeping them safe and for the health that they've had and the different ways that you've carried them over the years. And we know that you will continue to carry them in this new situation in Thailand. We pray for the couple that is uh, on the ground continuing the work that was done earlier. uh, And I pray again, encouragement and courage and fruitfulness, uh, that there be an abundance of fruit, uh, both for the business and for seeing what your kingdom is doing there. And I, I pray for each of us that you would stir in our hearts, so that our, we would be open to the work of your spirit and following your spirit as you guide us to uh, step into some of these things, whether it be with serve remote, whether it be with switchboard, or whether it be going ourselves. I pray that we would also open, we would always open our hearts to what you would have for us and that we would follow in boldness. We ask this in your name. Amen. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint. And you can find a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. Or you can go on Realm and join the group Southview Family Updates. And that will always make sure you're getting the weekly viewpoint in your inbox. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. And you can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form, so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant, because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God
3: together. Greetings, Southview. It is so good to see all your faces again. um, uh, I have the privilege of wrapping up our series together on while we wait. And to do that, I thought I would give you something to do with your hands. So when you came in, hopefully you were given one of these uh, pieces of rope. If you you don't have one, that's fine. This isn't mandatory. But if you got one, I want to talk a little bit as we start the message today about knots. Because every cowboy or cowgirl or every farmer or every good mountain climber or every good sailor knows the importance of a good knot. Right, so if you're a if you're a horse, or if you have if you're a horse, if you have a horse, if you're a horse, you're probably not in church today. But if you have a horse, you know that it's the importance of, for example, the clove hitch that you can use to tie your, your horse up. Or if you are a, a a mountain climber, you know like the the importance of a lot of knots. My favorite knot for mountain climbing is called the pressic knot because I love the story behind it. It's a knot that you can use with your shoelace if you ever get stuck. And you got to ascend a rope somewhere, you can use this and it uses friction and you can ascend at least if it's not wet or slippery. This Prussic knot, there's a great story around that invention of that knot. But mountain climbers know the importance of knot. Sailors know the importance of knot, whether it's a you know tying a good bowline or using it to tie your, your, your vessel to a, a cleat on a dock or using it to uh, put your sails together. Knots are important, right? And if you don't know knots, then the, the adage is true. If you don't know knots, then just tie lots, right? And that's probably most of us, right? You don't know knots, you just tie a lot of things, and hopefully it sticks. Well, I'm going to give you that encouragement right now. So you've got your string, and over the course of the next little bit, as you're sitting there, I want you to tie as many knots as you can with your string, and tie them as tight as possible. So you could just sit for a while, it'll give you something to do with your hands, um, as you kind of walk through the message with me, but just tie knots, Tight knots. You can do different knots. You can do whatever you want, but just tie a lot of knots. And we'll come back to this in a bit. But as we look at this final um, message on while we wait... We're going to do a whole kind of message, particularly around a word from the prophet of Jonah. And before we do that, I want us to understand the story in general. And there's no better way to do this in a condensed portion of time than to do that with our good friends from the Bible Project. So would you turn your attention to the screens for an overview of the minor prophet Jonah and his story?
4: The Book of Jonah, a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet. Rather, it's a story about a prophet a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all this territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to know that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam, and through him, God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all of those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters 1 and 3 telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagans' humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of, and the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. The story is full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors, who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of known as five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. Let's just dive in and we'll see how all the pieces work together. The story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against the evil and injustice in Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's bitter enemy. But instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, finding a ship going as far west as you can go to Tarshish. Now, the big question here is why? Why does Jonah run? Is he afraid? Does he just not like Ninevites? And we're not told yet. So the man of God tries to run from God, and he boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship, and then he falls asleep. So God sends a huge storm to wake up his prophet, while ironically the sailors above board are wide awake to everything that's happening. They can discern that there's a divine power at work here. So they throw the dice, and they discover that Jonah, he is the culprit. So they ask Jonah to explain himself, and Jonah spouts off a whole bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this God by getting on a boat? And when the sailors ask Jonah what, they should do he says kill me right by throwing me overboard which kind of seems noble at first until you realize this could actually be his most selfish move yet i mean what better way to avoid going to nineveh so he puts his blood on these innocent sailors hands by trying to force them to kill him they're reluctant of course and they repent to god even as they toss him over The storm subsides, and they end up fearing the God of Israel. And unlike Jonah, they actually worship God. But God foils Jonah's plans to escape Nineveh. As Jonah's sinking, God provides this strange, watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. Now, of course, under normal circumstances, this would be certain death. But in this story, everything's upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death becomes his passage back to life. Cramped in the stomach of this beast... Jonah utters a prayer where he never technically says that he's sorry but he does thank God for not abandoning him and he promises that he will obey God from this point on no matter what and God's response is quite comic, the whale vomits Jonah back onto dry land. So once again God commissions Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh and Jonah complies. We're told that Nineveh was a gigantic city, it would take days to walk through. So Jonah gets one day in and here is his message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. Now, his sermon is very short, and it's also odd. I mean, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong or of what they should do to respond. There's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeable, there's no mention of God. What's going on here? Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information? It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. There's just no effort on Jonah's part here. Whatever his motives are, the plan doesn't work because no sooner does he utter this five-word sermon that the king of Nineveh, the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes. So for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive than God's own prophet. So God forgives the Ninevites and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. Now, here's the brilliant part of the story. The last word of Jonah's short sermon, overturned, means just that, turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it can also be used of something being transformed, like turned over and changed into its opposite. And so comically, Jonah's words actually came true, but not in the way that he intended. Nineveh does get turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy. The final chapter brings all the pieces together. Jonah, he's fuming mad, and he utters his second prayer. He first tells God why he ran away back in chapter 1. It was not because he was afraid. Rather, it was because he knew that God was so merciful. And this is great. Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself from the book of Exodus, and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. He says he knew that God is compassionate and that you would find some way to forgive these horrible Ninevites. You can just hear the disgust in Jonah's voice. Jonah then cuts off the conversation, and he prays that God would kill him on the spot. He'd rather die than live with a God who forgives his enemies. Fortunate for Jonah, God doesn't comply and simply asks if Jonah's anger is even justified. Jonah ignores the question, and he goes outside the city to camp on a nearby hill, waiting to see what might Happen, you know, the Ninevites might repent of their repentance and get roasted after all. What happens next is very odd. God provides this viney plant to shade Jonah from the sun, and that makes him quite happy. But then God sends a tiny worm to eat up the plant, and so Jonah loses his shade. And there, in the heat of the sun, Jonah asks again that God kill him. So God, again, asks Jonah if his anger is justified, and Jonah barks back, absolutely just let me die. And those are Jonah's last words in the story. God's final words are what concludes the book. He says that this whole vine incident was an attempt to get through to Jonah, right? Jonah got all concerned and emotional over this vine, which he only enjoyed for a day. And God asked Jonah, you know, aren't Humans a bit more valuable than vines. I mean, isn't it okay if God might feel the same kind of emotion and concern for the city of Nineveh that's full of thousands of people who have lost their way and also their cows? And that's how the book ends, with God asking Jonah for permission to show mercy to his enemies. And what is Jonah's answer? The story doesn't say, because that's not the point. The point is that the book is trying to mess with you. And God's questions here are actually addressed to you, the reader. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? And so this book holds a mirror up to the one who reads it. In Jonah, we see the worst parts of our own character magnified, which should generate humility and gratitude that God would love his enemies and put up with the Jonah in all of us. And so this strange story actually becomes a message of good news about the wideness of God's mercy that ought to challenge us to the core. And that's the book of Jonah. So this book of Jonah ends and its whole intent
3: is to ask a question of us right? What will Jonah do at the end? What will Jonah do at the beginning, the middle, and the end? And what will we do as a result of this? So I think in this series of while you wait, it poses a question to us. What will do we do as we wait with our enemies? When we are waiting, what will we do with our hearts? How will we check our hearts for maybe the Prejudices or the hatred that we might hold that we've never really dealt with. So I wanna do a couple of quick highlights that I think will be helpful and then we're gonna focus on four verses and then actually just one word that I think will unpack this for us and apply it in our lives in a particularly unique way as we think about what does this look like at our, in our lives today. So first, there are two words. The, the word of the Lord comes to uh, Jonah twice, right? The first time he's told to go to, to Nineveh. Now God calls Jonah, this foreigner, to his sworn enemies, the Assyrians, to call them to repentance, Now, two things here, this had personal risk for Jonah, so there'd be one reason he'd be reluctant to go, right? It's going to be scary. You have to go to a place where you're not welcome, you don't really like them, they don't like you, and you're going to have to say some tough words to them. So first, there's some risk for Jonah. Second, Jonah would have probably considered this incredibly appalling, Like a good Israelite, these are the enemies, right? As nations have enemies, there's a sense of you want to see their destruction. These are people you are at war with. The thought of seeing anything but destruction comes would seem weird or awkward. So for Jonah, the thought of being able to to go and call them to repentance not only would be risky, for him it would be appalling to do this to the, the evil Assyrians. And so Jonah does what Jonah does. He runs. He goes and boards a ship on its way to Tarshish. He eventually, through a course of events, as we saw in the video, gets tossed into the sea, gets swallowed by a fish, thrown up on the shore. And then the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. The second time it comes, and Jonah now, in a bit of a repentant heart, reluctantly agrees. But Nineveh is a large city. It takes three days to walk through. And after the kind of the end of one day, as we heard in the video, with the least amount of effort possible, with a five-word sermon he preaches, and the people respond in a way that Jonah would not have anticipated, to a place where he's deeply actually offended that God's going to be compassionate and mercy on these evil Assyrians, and it creates a crisis in his heart and in his life. of of what is happening. And even the people respond, but even in the scriptures, say, which I don't know what to do with, the cows repentant. I, I don't know what to do with bovine repentance. Anyone have an idea what to do with this? I don't know what cow repentance looked like. Cows haven't done anything bad to me, but apparently they had sins to confess and they repented. I think it just goes to show and it's God's instruction that it was a complete and utter repentance from everyone from the king to even their cattle repented. Uh, at these five words in the bare minimum sermon that Jonah, this reluctant prophet, gives. So here is the word of the Lord, and I want to focus particularly on one word from Jonah chapter three, the first four verses. This is the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. Now, Jonah began by going one day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, there's an English word here in verse 4 that's, that's, that's began. It's translated from a Hebrew word, its original language, that actually has the connotation of an untying or a releasing, a letting loose, like a knot being let loose that Jonah is going to allow God to untie his heart as he goes into the city. This is the image underneath here. It's not simply like a begin. We would think of it as a start of a journey that has this whole connotation of an untying and a not being let loose as Jonah goes into the city. And I wanna suggest for us this evening that this is also us in our waiting. Jonah was all knotted up And he finally lets go in obedience. And to come back to the rope that you all have in your hands, that probably in the last few minutes you've tied like I have, a pretty nice series of knots in it. This is Jonah's heart. And I think it's represented for many of our hearts, even today, where we have been all knotted up in hatred and unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness, discrimination and prejudice. Yet as Jonah obeys, as I think God's calling us to do in our waiting, he begins to untangle and untie himself. In many ways, his night, his knots were so tight that it was suffocating his heart. And I think in many ways, the knot of our hearts, even in our waiting, are so tight. It's suffocating us. It's suffocating the life out of us. So I wonder, what if, what if, self in our waiting, one of the ways to prepare for what is next in our personal lives, the life of self use as a church, is for us to begin to untangle our hearts, to untie the knots of unforgiveness and of prejudice, practicing forgiveness and repentance, preparing our hearts and our lives for what God might want to do next and through us. Because God might want to bring revival to a city as he did in Nineveh, a city that did not deserve it, a city that all things mattered would seem like this was what God was ultimately gonna do. It seemed just that God would take this city down. And yet for Jonah, he had to untangle his heart begin to see what God might do. And at the end of Jonah, we still see a heart partially tangled in the question of what will Jonah do? And I think that's the question this evening for us. So I don't know what God is going to call or God is calling you to. I don't know whom that God might be leading you to. I don't know where God might be directing you to. But I do know that you cannot fully live into the calling that he has for you individually or collectively and experience the love that God has for you in your life in its fullness and the abundant life that God has for you um, or to reach the people that God is calling you to if you have unforgiveness or prejudice in your heart. And God is calling us in our waiting to untie our hearts because our knots are suffocating us. <clears throat> so, I want to suggest then for us this evening, in very practical terms, four ways for us to begin to deal with these knots in our lives. So while we wait, self-view, we first identify our knots. So if you have this knot in your hand, look at it. You've probably tied a series of knots. I want to suggest this evening that each of those knots that you have tied represents an individual, maybe a family member, maybe a coworker. Maybe somebody that's hurt you, maybe somebody that has betrayed you, maybe it's a people group, somebody you have prejudice or you you, you don't think somehow God could change or alter their lives and and you've knotted your soul so tight. In many ways, this is representative of our hearts. Ask yourself who those people might be. Identify your knots in your life. Pray as the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, you know, seek my heart, O God, and find any unword way in me. Or to contextualize it here, seek my heart and show me in the knots of my life where unforgiveness, resentment, bitterness, or maybe prejudice or discrimination has begun to, to, to tie my knot up so that I can't love the way God wants me to love or experience God's love in my life the way God wants to show it to me identify the knots in your life. And by those knots, I don't mean ideas, I mean people. Think of each of them as somebody and ask God to show you, because he will, who those people might be. So first, identify the knots in your life. Second, while we wait, begin to untie your knots. Begin by asking God to forgive you for the hatred or bitterness or resentment or discrimination or prejudice you might have in your life And ask for God's forgiveness for each and every one of those. And ask God to give you the strength to forgive. So you may experience the joy and the forgiveness that God would have for you in your knotted up life. Ask for God to help you to do that. Because God wants to help you to forgive. Now you might say to me, but Bryce, you don't understand what somebody has done to me. I've been Justly broken, and I'm like, I'm not God is not calling you to, to not deal with justice issues. I'm talking about unforgiveness and resentment that you might have that God wants to have in your life. And the scriptures say, Jesus says, us not willing to forgive others has consequences, right? Jesus spoke. In, in pretty harsh terms around this, as Matthew chapter six tells us in verse 14 and 15, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. It's pretty difficult words. And I think this is what Jesus means. Jesus means that if you kind of metaphorically take your hands and you want to choke those people that are the knots in your lives? You want to, of unforgiveness, you want to see, like, uh, not simply justice done because justice God wants to do, but you want to see revenge in their life. You want to hurt somebody else for how they've hurt you and you want to choke them? It's pretty difficult to grab a hold of a loving, all-consuming, loving, unconditional God with hands while you're trying to choke somebody else. And God's saying, I can't fully allow you to embrace me to experience my love and, and show because I love you completely and unconditionally, but you can't experience all of that if you hold unforgiveness and bitterness in my in my in your life. You can't hold on to me as we'll talk about the true vine if you're also holding on to other false vines of somehow of of resentment or bitterness or prejudice in your life. Ask me to help you bring forgiveness into those situations so you may follow me with all that I am and I might demonstrate into the world my goodness and love in all things. Actively praying for those who have hurt you and practically sharing God's love with them. In many ways, acting our way to change as Jonah even does in a small example here. What does it look like to begin to to act your way in obedience to treat others who have hurt you As God treats you who have hurt him, what does that look like to be compassionate and gracious and loving and forgiving to even your enemies? While we wait, identify your knots and begin to untangle them. And then while we wait, we take now our arms and we wrap them firmly around what Jesus says in John 15, him being the true vine. So as we untangle ourselves from unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment, we are now able to wrap ourselves around the true vine with more freedom and embrace the experience of abundant and eternal life or abundant life and, and freedom that Jesus wants to give us. That we can experience more of his abundant life in us because we have not held on to that uh, unforgiveness, maybe in our heart of the prejudice that we may have towards others. That as we wrap ourselves around the true vine, we begin to experience the depth of God's love and grace for us. Part of, I think, what discipleship is. And to do this, we need the empowerment of the Spirit, who empowers us to love even our enemies, as the Scriptures remind us with the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, right? How do I love my enemy in such a way that shows love, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, Goodness, self-control. How do I practice a love that's filled like that to even my enemies? By God empowering me, who wants to help me untie the knot so I can hold on to Him. And in it, there's a back and forth. In it, God, as I as I bring forgiveness to others and let things go, I begin to experience. More of God's love for me, and I experience more of God's love for me. I realize God loves me completely. I have, and I have done so much wrong. How can I hold back forgiveness towards others? And as I forgive others, I recognize how much God forgives me. And in it, I experience this, this embrace of God's good and holy love in my life that He wants me to experience in all of His fullness. We begin to experience this life and freedom in Jesus that's only possible with Him. So we identify our knots, we untie our knots, we wrap ourselves around the true vine, and then finally, we actively invite others into an active, or sorry, into a life changing relationship with Jesus by doing two things the scriptures tell us to, right? Number one, we, the great commandment, we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. And second, we love our neighbors as ourselves. There's no commandment greater than these. Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, we are called to love our neighbors. And Jesus actually identifies who our neighbors are when he is asked and pressed on this. Because much like us, we think, oh, I will love my neighbors as being the people that I get along with, my people that I kind of like and people in my life that I, that I choose to be around. But Jesus says, no, when he is pressed around this question, what does he say? Basically, in, in, in summary, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which says, you know who you're called to love? You're called to love even the, the, the least uh, likely person to help you in your time of need. Who is that person? That is the person you're also called to love. Your enemy, the least likely person who's, who's going to help you in your time of need, that's the person you were called to love. So as I wait, I begin to untangle my heart. I begin to uh, uh, be able to understand God's love freely, wrapping around myself around the true vine, Jesus, as it says in John chapter uh, 15. And then I begin to to love others, even my enemies, as I care and and walk in my world around me. And then I begin to make disciples in the great commandment, or so the great commission that Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 28. And this, of course, isn't simply a personal or isn't simply a church calling, like the church is supposed to make disciples. The scripture is clear. This is a calling for you and for me. We're invited and called as we wait, as we begin to open our hearts up to make disciples. So, whatever God's calling you to individually or collectively, I guarantee you it includes loving others, even our enemies. And I guarantee you it means making disciples of all people, even those people you don't think deserve to be disciples. That is God's call as we wait, to begin to untangle our hearts from the knots of our unforgiveness in our lives together. So self view. In the season of waiting that you might be in in your individual lives, in the season of waiting that you might be in as a church, perhaps the one thing that we all know we need to do without question is to deal with maybe the discrimination, the hatred, the stereotypes, the unforgiveness, the bitterness, the resentment in our lives, all of the knots that we have so tightly sewn around our hearts, starving us from the love that God wants us to fully experience in him so that we may be prepared for what god is going to call us to because he's going to call you to love your enemies and he's going to call you to make disciples in your personal life and he's going to call you to do this as a church no question this is the thing that god commands and commissions us to be able to do so in this season maybe god is calling you today to ask for forgiveness Forgiveness for not forgiving others. To deal with your bitterness towards somebody in your life. To deal with the prejudice towards maybe a people group in your community or the surrounding area. Maybe God's asking you to do this so you may untangle your life and be prepared for how God wants to use you in this next season for wherever God's gonna call you individually or as a church. This is the time in your waiting, to untie the knots that are suffocating the life out of your soul, to entangle yourself and follow Christ in obedience, letting God's heart for all people to come to repentance and not making that decision for everyone and wanting to replace it with the some people you think deserve it. God's grace is profoundly lavish, extravagant, and scandalous, and it's available to all, not simply some. So, we're going to conclude our time this morning by coming to the communion table. The communion table is profoundly and amazingly open to all, all who would receive Jesus, all who would come um, to Him in faith. This is an open invitation, not restricted to simply those who are, are, are we think, deserve God's love, mercy, and grace. All those who receive Jesus, this is the table for you. And our hearts should be broken and untied and wanting all people to be able to come to this table. So as you look at this table and you think, you know what, there's some people in my life, I don't think this is for them. Those are the knots that you need to let go. Those are the people that you need to forgive those are the people that you need to deal with. God wants you to deal with maybe the discrimination or prejudice in your heart, in your life, so you can see, they can experience the openness and the goodness of God. So together, we come before this table, and we're reminded of Jesus, the body of Christ, which was broken for you and for me. Reminded of the cup. that reminds us of the blood of Christ that was poured for you and for me. Not simply spilled like it was by accident, but given, poured. Jesus giving this for all those who would turn to him. This is this is God's gift for all. This is an invitation for us today. So this morning, I want you to grab your cup and your communion wafer. We're going to partake of these together. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I receive from the Lord what I de- uh, deliver to you, that the Lord... Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had broken it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake together. In the same way, he also took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us partake together. I'm going to invite you to stand. So, selfie. In our knotted up lives of unforgiveness and resentment, the prejudice we may have towards other, and the season of waiting that you might be in individually or us as a church, I, my invitation for you, my invitation for us is to come and know how much God loves you and how much he wants to love you to love others in a reflective sort of way. And so I wanna read for you from Ephesians chapter three, and I want you to hear these words of God's love immense and lavish for you that's displayed in his death and his resurrection that's displayed in our lives and that we are invited to experience and share with all those we come in contact with and not simply those we like, but those to which we do not or not don't think maybe are deserving of God's mercy and grace, like the knotted up lives that sometimes we hold. So would you hear these words as we conclude our time together? It says this, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now pause, so through, you may wonder, this is impossible. I can't experience God's love this way. I can't share God's love this way. Then hear the following two verses. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go into our world knowing that God wants to unwrap your hearts from the knots that there might be me there so that you may love him fully, wrapping your arms around the true vine that is Jesus and loving our world in the same way. The same way God, who is compassionate and gracious and patient, and slow to anger and abounding in love, we may love with his love a world that desperately needs it. So whatever you're waiting for, do this as you wait, for it is God's commission and God's command. Go in peace, selfie. God bless you.